0: Good morning. I turned right to Micah. Can you believe that? So it's good to see you all staying faithful despite the road conditions. Amen. We're South Dakotans. We need to act like it. Amen. If this was where I come from, we would have canceled for the next week. Just out of spite. Well, have you noticed how on average my lessons have been getting shorter and shorter? Yeah. Now, there's a couple reasons for that. One is uh, when we make the move to to services, we'll start at 10 a.m., and so we'll have less time to to gather together in Sunday school, but uh, honestly, I would want to make that change no matter what, but I never would, and it's just more difficult than maybe some of you think to just ramble for 55 minutes straight. I had to do that when I was teaching in Mississippi every hour of the day, and it stinks, Brother Brock, and at the end of the day, your brains just mush, and so to get up and teach for 55 minutes, it's hard, but by the look on y'all's faces by about the 40-minute mark, I think it's probably harder for y'all to sit and listen. It just gets old after a while. Well, praise the Lord, we got more riff-raff coming in. Um... My wife's in the nursery today, bless her heart. Hey, Jeff, good to see you. Good to see you matching your wife. That's wonderful. Oh, Are you all going to be at the sweetheart banquet? No, I will. You will be? Okay, well, you would have made a wonderful couple. <laughs> Probably would have invoted sweetheart king and queen. We should do that. <laughs> um, anyway, where am I at? Yeah, so that last 10 to 15 minutes is like, Are we almost done yet? Well, in Brother DeGarmo's absence, we are migrating through Micah. That's the best I could come up with on short notice. As of now, it appears that he will be back sometime in April. And that will be a huge blessing to have him back and teaching. Remember, I chose Micah thinking that it might time out well when he gets back. And after we flew through chapter one, I got really nervous And then we got to chapter 2, and it's really slowed down. So we're just on this roller coaster. We'll see how it it turns out. But today marks our sixth week in chapter 2. So if you'll turn to Micah chapter 2, we'll begin reading verses 6 through 11. Micah chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, the Bible says, Prophesy ye not, say they to them that prophesy. They shall not prophesy to them that they shall not take shame. O thou that art named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord straightened? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him that walketh uprightly? Even of late my people is risen up as an enemy. Ye pull off the robe with the garments from them that pass by securely as men averse from war. The women of my people have ye cast out from their pleasant houses." From their children have you taken away my glory forever. Arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest. Because it is polluted, it shall destroy you, even with a sore destruction. If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of this people. So I won't recap all of last week's. If you missed it, please go online and listen. You'll be all caught up. But I do want to continue where we left off last week, there in verses 6 and 7, where they don't want somebody prophesying to them the Word of God. And, and uh, the end there says, do not my, uh, verse 7, Do not my words do good to him that walketh uprightly. We, we saw that the house of Israel did not want to hear God's Word from the mouth of the prophets. And any time we reject God's word, we are headed for judgment. Any time we decide to cast it aside and not let it affect our life or think it's a light thing, we're headed for judgment. But the end of verse 7, as I said, it, it says that God's word will do good to them that walk uprightly. I have never heard those who have genuinely received the word of God complain about it. Those who genuinely know God are saved by the blood of Christ. They don't complain about the word of God. They may not always understand it. There may be growing pains along the way. But those who love God will love His word. And in these two verses, we can see the difference between those who reject God's word and those who receive God's Word. The, the difference between these two groups of people, it's observable. It's quantifiable. It is something we can see with our natural eye. It's something we can observe and we can take note. And, and we know it to be true because it's something we can see. The, the proof is right here before us. And if we would just be willing to admit the results, we see the difference between those who live by the book and those who reject the book. We can see it. And when you observe this, you have to weed out those who profess to know God but don't really stay in the Word of God. They, they don't read it. They don't study it. They don't meditate it. They don't memorize it. We have to be willing to understand that just because somebody attends church doesn't mean they're in the Word of God. So when you observe this principle... You have to make sure who you're observing actually is walking with God. Because those who have a daily walk with God, those who spend time every day in God's Word and, and walk with Him and talk with Him, they have peace and joy in their life. Amen. And their faces look like it, even in Sunday school. And so they have peace, they have joy. Psalm 119, 165 says, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. That particular passage is often misapplied. The word offend there is not what most people use it to mean. Many people quote that verse and say, I'm never insulted and I don't get upset and I don't get ruffled because I love God's word. Well, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that you're not annoyed. It doesn't mean you don't get resentful. Great peace have they that love the law, and nothing shall offend them. That word offend, as is in many cases in your King James Bible, the word offend often means to be tripped up. A stumbling block. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing trips them up. Nothing causes them to stumble because they're in the word of God. It's observable. You can see it. And, and just keep that in mind when you quote that verse to your buddy that made you mad and you're trying to act like you're not mad. Yeah. I'm not mad. Great piece of... love. The... In the parable of the sower, we read about the seed which fell into stony places. These were those who heard the word of God and with joy they received it. Yet Matthew 13 verses 20 and 21 say, But he that received the seed in the stony places... The same is he that heareth the word, and Annan with joy receiveth it. Yet he hath not rooted himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. Those who love the word of God enough to stay in it are those who are not tripped up, do not stumble when persecution and tribulation comes into our life. It's a decision that you have to make. And did you catch the reason why those who were in tribulation and persecution were tripped up? It says in that verse, because of the Word, they are offended. Isn't that interesting? Because of the Word of God, that which they once received with joy is now that which is causing them to stumble. And we have to decide as we go through life, when persecutions come up, trials, tribulations, we have to decide whether or not we will stick with the book. Are we going to stay with the book, or are we going to say, no, this is really what's causing me the problems? When you stay in the Bible, you stay in the race. Amen. And the very Word which may bring tribulation and persecution, because if you live by the book, you will suffer persecution to some extent. That same Word is what navigates us through the tribulation and the persecution. So we have to stay with it. Don't let that trip you up and cast it aside. So you've got to stay with the Word of God to navigate successfully through life. There has always been great peace to those who love the Word of God. Proverbs 3 1 and 2 says, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments for length of days and long life, and peace shall they add to thee. The Word of God gives us peace. And as I look out over this Sunday school class, many of you are going through some very deep waters, but you're here. You have peace because you're in the Word of God. It brings peace to our life. But on the other hand, those who reject the words of God, those who uh, refuse to live in it, are those who are taken captive. They live in captivity because they've rejected God. And the rejection of God's Word robs us of a blessing. It robs us of joy. It robs us of peace. Isaiah 57 verses 20 and 21 say, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. There's no peace. I know those who say they have kept God's word, and yet they're absolutely miserable. Have you met those? No, 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 I, I, I love God's Word. Why are you mad all the time? Church folks, why are you mad? Well, I, I love God's Word. They hate the world. They hate the church. They seem to hate everything. They have no peace. They have no joy. But they say that they have faithfully kept the Word of God. And based upon God's Word, listen to me now, that's an impossibility. Based upon God's Word. You cannot be born again, love the Word of God, heed the Word of God, without being blessed with peace and joy. It's an impossibility according to God's Word. According to the Bible, you will be blessed, you will have joy, and you will have peace. If that's not true, then God's a liar. Those who say they follow God's Word and yet have no peace are those who are typically angry all the time somebody's lying either it's god or it's the angry man and proverbs 29:22 says a furious man aboundeth in transgression the bible doesn't teach that an angry and furious man abounds in the word of god it's not what the bible says it teaches that an angry and furious man abounds in transgression now who am i supposed to believe The angry man who is a walking contradiction to the Word of God or the God who authored His Word. I'm going to believe God's Word which is the same Word that taught me I'm saved through the blood of Christ. That He's the one who came to die in my place to take away my sin. And I know that's true so I'm going to go ahead and believe the rest of the book that tells me that. Amen. Some of you may be wondering well is it really that big of a deal? And the answer is yes it is. Many today who profess to know God are angry at God. They'll try to convince those around them that they've obeyed the Word of God and all they got was a curse. And I know it's a big deal because they end up in my office. Meanwhile, the end of verse 7 in our text is clear. God says, Do not my words do good to him that walketh uprightly? <laughs> it's that simple. It's an observable fact, and to say otherwise is to totally turn your back on all the proof. Everybody with me on this? If you're going to say you're following the Word of God, your life is going to reflect it. Not saying you won't go through hardships. I'm not saying you won't go through valleys. Not saying death won't come to your house and all of those things. But you'll have peace. You'll have peace with God. And it's something that if you've been in church for any length of time, if you walked with God for any length of time, you've seen it. You've observed it. You can watch those who say one thing but do another. You can watch those who actually are in the book and you can see that there's something different about their walk. There's something different about their countenance. They can go through difficult times and yet it, it it's as if All is well in the Father's house. And it's as if everything's going to be okay. And that's the kind of peace that God wants to give you. As you hold on to His Word. As you stay in the Word of God and you walk with God. It does good to those who walk uprightly. The Word of God never steers you wrong. That's what some people say. Let's move on to verse 8. Even of late, my people is risen up as an enemy. Ye pull off the robe with the garment from them that pass by securely as men averse from war. So we find this impassioned rebuke of the people by God because he addresses them as his people. He's still calling them my people. And I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, if you had a dad like mine, the hardest rebuke for me to endure was this kind of rebuke. It didn't bother me so much when I would just get a, a stern talking to or have to take my punishment from my dad. I used to joke I had a bunk in the woodshed. But I remember when I, when I brought shame upon the family name, that really bothered me. Because I saw the disappointment in my father's eyes. To see how disappointed my dad was with me, it really hurt. And the disappointment was deep enough that there was no need of a physical punishment. There was no need of a sharp rebuke. It was enough to know that I had caused shame. And I don't know if you can sense that kind of emotion from God here in verse 8. Even of late, my people has risen up as an enemy. I sense the disappointment that God has in His own people. And in the gospel, according to John, we read the words, "He came unto His own, and his own received him not." How heartbreaking. It's painful when one of our own brings reproach upon our name. We can deal with stupid mistakes. We can deal with slip-ups, but it's difficult when open rebellion against what we stand for as a family and a church, when that hits and it brings shame, that's harder to deal with than somebody just making a dumb mistake. Imagine how God must have felt here against the house of Israel. Also notice that God is not the one who had become their enemy but they rose up against God and they, they rose up against His Word. And it's interesting because sometimes people go through it and they start blaming God. Well, if God loved me, if, if God really was this and if God was really that, I wouldn't be going through. And, and it says here that even of late my people has risen up. as I mean, It doesn't say God has become their enemy. What ended up happening here is they returned God's goodness with evil. Proverbs 17.13 says, Whoso rewardeth evil for good, evil shall not depart from his house. But not only did they rise up against God, but this also um, means that they rose up against each other. They became enemies of one another, of their own family and their own house of Israel. And as they rose up against each other, it was not only that they rose up against others within their own house, but the Bible also teaches, I'll read you some passages here in a minute, that they rose up against the house of Judah. And the house of Judah rose up against Israel, and there was this infighting, not only within the house, but against the two houses. These families were coming against each other. 2 Chronicles, in chapter uh, 28, verse 1, and then verses 5 through 8, it says Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem, but he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father. Wherefore, the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria, and they smote him, and carried away a great multitude of them captive, and brought them to Damascus. And he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel. And so, Israel is going to take some of Judah captive." And so they were delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who smote him with a great slaughter. For Pekah, the son of Remaliah, slew in Judah 120,000 in one day, which were all valiant men, because because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. And Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, slew Maaseah, the king's son, and Azricam, the governor of the house, and Elkanah that was next to the king, and the children of Israel carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, and took, away, took also away much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. And so we see this infighting that they had risen up as an enemy, as Micah there is saying. And they were taking captive. Israel was taking Judah captive. 200,000 of them after 120,000 were killed. In Isaiah 9.21... It says, Manasseh, Ephraim, and Ephraim, Manasseh, and they together shall be against Judah. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. So those are examples of the house of Israel and the house of Judah becoming enemies. And this is what happens in a family when somebody rejects the Word of God. Don't tell me the truth! I don't want to live by the book. I don't want to hear it. And what ends up happening? Infighting. You know what happens oftentimes when couples come in for counseling? One of them, if not both of them, have stopped living by the book. And it causes problems, it causes captivity. Infighting. But as we've been studying in Micah, there were problems internally with the house of Israel and against each other. And we get a description of what was taking place in the rest of verse 8 in verse 9 where it says, You pull off the robe with the garment from them that pass by securely as men averse from war. The women of my people have ye cast out from their pleasant houses. From their children have you taken away my glory forever. So they were robbing people of their clothing. They were stripping the robes off of them and the garments off of them. As they passed by, it wasn't just that they were taking the outer garment, but they were also taking raiment. They took all that they could. Now, I believe that was a much bigger deal then than we give it credit for today. In our 21st century mindset, we, I think if somebody came up to me and said, give me your code, I'd say, okay, I got about six others back at the house. You know what I'm saying? Um, if somebody stole my clothes, I had that happen when I was in high school. That's always fun. Somebody breaks into your locker and all your stuff's thrown around, except your clothes are not there. And Anyway, that's immaterial, but I'm having these flashbacks of the good old days, and uh, that's what I get for being the only... Anyway, anyway, focus. My wife isn't in here to keep me on track. And I think we look at this and we think, well, if somebody stole our coat, uh, okay. And really just about any item of clothing for most of us, we have replacements for at the house. We could easily acquire more. But life was far different then, amen? As it once was not too long ago in America, and still is in some pockets of America. I can take you to some places in the southern Appalachians where it is very poor. In fact, one of the poorest is in southeast Kentucky. And you find these places where... Man, if somebody stole your clothes, it would be a huge economic setback. You understand what I'm saying? And and here's these people. I I think we read this sometimes and we just kind of breeze past it. We don't think much of it. But it's a big deal. And and if you're um, old enough to remember the days when um, somebody had their church overalls and they had their work overalls, that's about all they had. And so you wore your good overalls to church, and then when your old ones wore out, your church ones became... And, uh, and I know people that way. And if you're poor in here, or if you've ever been poor, you can relate to the, the, the hardship that this would cause. It's not like they had Walmart. What a, what a day that must have been. It, it wasn't like they had social programs. So it was a big deal to have your clothes stolen from you. They lived hand to mouth you you worked for a day's wages just so you could buy more food and so it was a it was a different existence and this verse says they pulled the garments off of them that passed by securely i believe what this means is it, they were taking garments from those who really had no need to be alarmed they were just going about their daily lives they were not expecting any evil to befall them they were taking care of their personal affairs and a place that they thought was a place of safety in their own nation among peaceable men, and yet they came upon these hardships. It goes on to say that it was as men averse from war, which means it was as men returning from war. And when I first read this, I I thought, and I still do, but I thought this meant those that those who were robbing the people were doing so as if they had come back from war. In other words, when you went to war and you took up the spoils of war, and it says that they were robbing those as men, what does it say? Um, as men averse from war, as men coming back from war. I, I thought the way I read that is that they were just stealing like it was spoils from war. But as I got to studying it, I read other opinions and I discovered that most people believe this means the people who were robbed were as those who felt they were safe as coming back from war. You win a victory, you come back, you're safe. I don't know, I kind of still stick with my original uh, feeling there, but I reckon it just depends on what point of view one reads it. All right. The phrase at the beginning of verse 9 is more difficult to understand definitively. It says, The women of my people have ye cast out from their pleasant houses. I mean, it's easy enough that we understand women were being forced out of their homes, but it can have different applications. One thought is that these women are those who were cast out through divorce, which when you read the Hebrew, the word for cast out is sometimes translated divorce. But the text here doesn't really seem to suggest that angle, although that is certainly an application. Another thought is that these are the wives of the men who were defrauded out of their fields and houses, and therefore they were also cast out of their homes, and they were left destitute as a result. Perhaps more likely, this is my personal opinion, is that these women are the widows. Remember from verse 2 that the houses and fields were being taken away by violence. And it could be like the account that we read a few weeks ago with Naboth who was killed so that Ahab could take his field from him and obviously his wife would have been left a widow. And those who would forcibly take possessions by killing, there would be widows left in the wake. And once the husband was out of the way, they took advantage of the widows. Those who they were commanded to take care of, they were taking advantage of. They were casting them out of their houses. And no matter if it was due to divorce, being defrauded, or being a widow women were being cast out of their houses and a woman likes to have a house. Amen? Likes to have a house to nest in. The, my most favorite house that we've had, I won't describe it to you, but my wife would tell you it was probably her least favorite. Um, men, we're, we're pretty utilitarian. Amen? Got a roof over my head. I'm, I'm warm from the cold. I, I'm dry from the rain. I feel pretty good about my situation here. Women... You know, they got the little towels that you can't actually use. They're just for decoration. Uh, the soaps. <laughs> that's how I grew up. My mom always had those, like, fancy towels. No, 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 don't, don't use that towel. It's hanging on the stove. No, that's the decorative one with the chicken on it. Oh, can't use it if it has ducts or fowl. You know, any kind of fowl, you can't use the towel. Oh, okay. So, you know, in, in my house, I refuse that. You can use any towel you want in my house. Amen. I have no idea where I was going with this. Oh, mercy. Anyway, a woman makes a house a home. And in those days and in that culture, it was far more difficult for a woman to stand on her own, as still is the case in certain countries, especially those in the Middle East. I did a quick web search of, the, of countries that are really difficult for women on their own, and, and the top ten, about seven or eight of them, were all in the Middle East. Um, and so anyway, the reason this makes the most sense to me to likely refer to widows is because of how God commanded a widow to be treated. And when we get to the New Testament, we find Jesus rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew twenty three fourteen. It says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses." And for a pretense, make long prayer. Therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. And so under the guise of religion, they were taking advantage of the widows. They were robbing them of everything until they at last had their house, especially if it was a pleasant house, like we read here, a house to be desired. And they would take advantage of them until they had all of their possessions. And some religions are still doing that today. You walk into their... Their churches, they're like gold-lined. I mean, the, the people are being robbed through indulgences. Well, you need to pay in order to get somebody out of purgatory. You need to pay in order that we can pray. and You need to pay. And under the guise of religion, people are getting all kind of rich off of it. And so that's what they were doing under... Under the cloak of religion, they would make these long prayers. And some people think that they would go into the house and they would make these, this pretense of a long prayer. And while they were in prayer, somebody else would start stealing stuff. I don't know if that's true. That's just something I read. And in either case, they devoured widows' houses. And what is a woman in that culture, in that day, supposed to do at that point? What are they going to do? They've been cast out of their house. If they're of a certain age, it's not likely they're going to remarry. Amen. And so it was causing all kinds of problems. And God hates that. He, he hates that that was taking place. Next in verse 9 we read, From their children have ye taken away my glory forever. Now the women should have been treated a certain way because they are the fairer sex. It's what the Bible teaches. That's not just my opinion. They should have been treated uh, more delicately. The children deserve to be treated delicately because of their age. Uh, We should be more tender to children. And and whether or not men were ever as chivalrous as we're led to believe, at least at one time there was the saying, women and children first. Now where did that come from? Well, I read all kinds of stuff on that and I got down all kinds of rabbit trails. Whether that was completely the, the uh, culture back then, at least there was the idea that men should be expected to bear certain hardships that women and children wouldn't need to bear. But by the men taking advantage of and uh, some even being killed, the women would be cast out of their houses, but the children suffered. The, the children would suffer by having God's glory removed from them. How sad is this? Just a picture of these children who are just innocent bystanders. And because of their parents' actions, because of the wickedness of the nation, the children would, would suffer. They would be taken captive. They would be removed out of the land, and the children would miss out on the blessings of the land. They would grow up in a strange land, and in many cases, they would be separated from their families. As a result of being taken captive, because people would just be sold. And so it was a big deal. They would be taken away from God's glory, and it says here that they would be taken away forever at the end of verse 9. The people would not repent, is what this is saying. They refused to get right with God. Their generation and the generation following would never enjoy the prosperity of the land. And because of the disobedience of of the adults here. Now, they would miss out on God's covenant. And we have to take our lives serious for the sake of our children. Amen. Our children are depending on us. They don't know it. But they're depending on us to live right that they might be blessed. Amen. When, when we refuse to walk with God as parents, our children suffer. There may be a relation here to Proverbs 17.6, talking about the glory being taken away, which says, children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children are their fathers. The glory of children are their fathers, the Bible says, and through captivity, they would be removed from that glory. Uh, children being separated from their fathers. Now, as you read through the Bible you will notice God has a concern for three groups of people specifically. I mean, He's concerned for all people. But as you read through the Bible, there's three groups of people that stand out. The widows, the fatherless, and the poor. We see that all throughout the Word of God. God takes these groups of people very seriously. And we find, I believe, overtones of these three groups in these verses here. The poor were those who were being defrauded. You might remember reading some passages. They would stand in the gate, and they would be refused judgment. They would be taken advantage of. Their lands would be taken. So the poor were being defrauded. The widows were being cast out of their homes. And the fatherless would be torn from their families through captivity. And God is very serious about the treatment of these three groups of people. Exodus 22, verses 22 through 24 say, "'Ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If thou afflict them in any wise, and they cry it all unto Me, I will surely hear their cry, and My wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless.'" God says, if you treat them wrong, I'm going to treat you wrong, and then your wife is going to be a widow and your children are going to be fatherless because I'm going to have to kill you. Isaiah 10, 1 and 2 says, Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees and that right grievousness which they have prescribed to turn aside the needy from judgment and to take away the right from the poor of My people that widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. Zechariah 7, 8-10 says, And the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment, and show mercy and compassions every man to his brother. And oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor, and let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. God intended for His people... To care for the poor. To take care of the widows. To take care of the fatherless. That's how God had set it up. But partly because of our neglect, and partly because more and more people are turning away from the church, the government has now stepped in and taken that role. Amen. The government now is the one we turn to to take care of the poor, the widows, and the fatherless, not the church. And God wanted Israel to care for these. And why did God command all that? Why is there such an emphasis on widows, fatherless, and the poor? When you read the Bible, you'll find God will routinely remind them as He mentions these three, people, these three groups that you need to take care of them because you need to remember what you were when you came out of Egypt. You need to remember that you were poor and that you were afflicted. You need to remember that you were in a strange land and that you didn't have much. And that uh, you didn't have uh, God reigning over. You didn't have any of this stuff. And, and, you, and, and you need to remember that because when you start to forget who you once were, you lose your compassion for other people. Isn't that right? And so we have to, we have to always remember what God brought us out of people all people are created in the image of God and as such they deserve to be loved. Matthew 25, I'm going to turn there. You can follow along if you'd like. Matthew chapter 25, and I'm going to read verses 31 through 46. Matthew 25, it says in verse 31 When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And He shall set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the King say unto them on His right hand, Come ye blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was and hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer, and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, insomuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I wasn't hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hunger or a thirst, a stranger? Or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee. Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of these, one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And they shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. James wrote this that pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Paul wrote that we are to honor widows that are widows indeed. John wrote, "Whoso hateth, whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him?" There's many verses we could read throughout the Bible on this particular subject that show us God's heart for the poor, the widows, and the fatherless. And God makes it clear. That if these groups of people were neglected, then judgment would fall. And so I just wonder how your treatment is today of the fatherless, the poor, and the widows. We need to care for them, amen? I don't know what all that looks like all the time, but we need to do what we can. I know I have a heart for the widows of our church, for the widows we support on the mission field. And we give them more money per month than we do the missionary. And we ought to take care of the widows. And we ought to do what we can to support them. We ought to reach out to those who are poor and be a blessing to them. Uh, I think we do that here in our church, at least among the brethren, very well, because I know who we give to. But those outside of the church, how are we doing? And do we care for the fatherless? And how sad it is to see a child uh, with no father, with no parents. Now, God said, if you neglect those, my judgment's coming. Look at verse 10. Arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is polluted. It shall destroy you, even with a sore destruction. So they had forced the women and children out of their possessions, and now God was going to force them out of the land. You force people out, now I'm going to force you out. The land was intended to be their rest, it it was the possession that God had for them to be a blessing to them that they could enjoy all the days of their life. It was the blessings of God. Deuteronomy 12, 9 through 12 says, For ye are not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which the Lord your God giveth you. But when ye go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God giveth you to inherit, and when he giveth you rest from all your enemies round about so that ye dwell in safety, then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Thither shall ye bring all that I command you, your burn offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings of your hand and all your choice vows which ye vow unto the Lord. And ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God, ye and your sons and your daughters, your men servants and your maidservants, and the Levite that is within your gates. God says, I'm going to bring you to a place of rest. I'm going to bring you to a place where you can enjoy my blessings and you can offer offerings to me and you can worship me freely. But because they had polluted the land, the Bible says they're going to be destroyed with a sore destruction. This verse says that the land... Shall destroy you, and that 's interesting to me leviticus eighteen twenty six and twenty eight says ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, neither any of your own nation nor any stranger that sojourneth among you that the land spew not you out also when ye defile it as it spewed out the nations that were before you. I just love the picture Blech. leviticus twenty twenty two you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments. And do them, that the land, whither I bring you to dwell therein, spew you not out. Now, for those who are new to this class, I take every opportunity to talk about vomit that I can. So I have to read those passages when able. Just something about being spewed. But it's interesting to me that it says that the land will spew them out, for they disobeyed God. I want to finish by saying God wants His children to enter into rest. He wants you to have rest. He wants you to have peace. He wants you to have that place of freedom, that liberty we have in Christ. There is a place of rest for those in, the, in, in Christ. Psalm 37, 7 says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Psalm 116, 7-9 says, Return unto thy rest, O my soul. For the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Are you walking with the Lord? That's the only place for you to have true rest in this life. You can't forfeit, or you can forfeit, You can give up your right to that rest when you refuse to hearken to God's Word as we've seen here in our text. You may not lose your salvation, but you can lose the blessings of God. And you can still end up captive by not heeding His Word. He wants you to have rest. And the rest is in Him. Your rest is in Christ. He wants to be your portion. He wants you to find contentment in Him. We have here no continuing city. There's no physical possession upon this earth we're to attach ourselves to. We have no land here, but we seek a better land to come. We are to have rest though. Are you enjoying the rest that God offers every believer? Are you dwelling in Christ and is Christ dwelling in you? Have you ceased from your own labors And just learn to rest in His. There's a rest. Honor God with your life. Enjoy His rest and all the blessings associated with. And then there's coming a day for our eternal rest. Hallelujah. When there's a new heaven, a new earth, a new city. And there shall we ever be with the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. So I hope you're living in the rest of God today that He offers you. Let's pray.